If you'll turn uh, on page 11 of your bulletin, you can turn to these passages if you'd like, but we've just got them all uh, here as we're dealing with the topic of worship again today. And here are several passages that pertain to that. Now, we're going to talk about gathered worship and scattered worship, that is, the church that worships as we're together and then we worship uh, as we're scattered. And you'll see that in this passage. Also, you'll see in the second uh, passage our uh, third audience. We have three audiences, God and one another and then the world. And here's a, a little account of what Paul says might and will happen as God gives us grace as a body. So we begin with Ephesians 5, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 14. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And then, thinking outside the gathered group, Paul, in a well-known passage, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And put another way in Colossians 3, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this life of praise and dependence upon Christ shows itself in this way in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray again. Lord, give us grace as we come to your word to rest in your good news, to believe it, to live it out in our lives, to rejoice, Lord, to have lives of praise that rejoice in the wonderful rescue of God that shows itself in the very way we love other people. Bless us, Lord, to that end. Amen. Now, when you first meet someone, you many times get the normal question when you get to know each other. Uh, so, Darwin, what do you do? And I recommend that you answer it normally, okay, as I do. And so I'll say, uh, I'm, I'm a minister. 
And, of course, this gets various responses uh, from extremely positive, inviting, and interested responses to what my one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter says when she comes into her room and sees something spilled. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You can see in their face kind of a fearful confusion, you know, and converted it into flying terms. It would be mayday, mayday, you know. Get out of there, Bill. Get out of there now. That's an order. You know, that kind of thing. But uh, though we know what we should say, and we go ahead and say that, I just want to use that as an opportunity to say, in your heart, you really can say, and the most basic and ultimate answer to that question is, what do you do is, I worship. Right? That's what we dealt with last week. That really covers all the bases. No matter what you're doing, in everything that you're doing, you get to be worshiping as you do it. And that's really good news. Our shorter catechism begins with this same idea, doesn't it? Right out of the chute, question number one, what is the chief end of man? What is the fundamental purpose of humanity? What is it that gives true meaning and significance to humanity? The answer, the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. What do you do? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm into enjoying God, glorifying God. <laughs> That's what I do. And if you're a 14-year-old girl, you say, like all the time, like in everything I think and say and do, like I worship, right? <laughs> like it pervades everything. Tom kidded me about sounding like a 14-year-old girl one Friday morning when I said like too many times. So that's why I got this illustration from myself, okay? <clears throat> of course, not perfectly, right? We don't worship perfectly, but that's the ideal. That's what we tell ourselves every day. What if that was at the top of your calendar as kind of an umbrella for everything else? Let's see today. Ah, worship. Tuesday. Ah, hmm, worship. Uh Wednesday. Three days in a row. Worship. What if it was like seeing vacation? You know, you you see, headed to Canada, you know, September 28th. Only 14 more days and we're going to Canada. Later that day, only 13 and three quarters days and we're going to Canada. You know, that expectation, anticipation of this glorious vacation. What about the anticipation of a life that you get to live in worship day in and day out in everything that you do? That's what the Bible holds forth for us. That's what God redeems us for. Last week, we began this series on uh, being the body of Christ. The first part's reaching up, worship, our relationship to God. Next part will be reaching in, our relationship to one another. And the last one, reaching out, our relationship to the world. And in our, uh, in our, as we begin on worship, we do what Mike Cosper calls the one, two, three. One is one author and object of worship, two, simple, two contexts of worship, right? Church gathered, the church scattered, and then three is three audiences of worship. God is an audience, but we don't tend to think of we're an audience 
and we really don't tend to think of, the world is an audience. And so these are helpful categories for us. And so we've seen that God is the author and object of worship. He's the one, as Brian began, uh, who initiates worship. He rescues us from our pathetic refrigerator box of our commitment to self and its mass production of idolatries, and he brings us into the relief and the joyful satisfaction of the big sky adoration of God. That's what God does for us. And it involved coming himself in the person of Jesus Christ to live a perfect life in the flesh and to offer up his life as a satisfaction for our sin, standing in our place in the cross, bearing our judgment and punishment that we deserved, and then being raised the third day from that judgment of death into a new and glorious everlasting life. That's what he came and did for us. And then he proclaims this to us, what he's accomplished, and he announces this rescue mission of this death for us and a new life for us, and he pierces our heart with the love of what he's done. He stuns us with this majestic humility of his sacrifice. He woos us and wins us with this earnest invitation of complete and everlasting forgiveness in Christ, of a transformed life in Christ. And each of us has to say, yeah, yeah, that, that's when I started admiring him. He had, he had me at the cross. <laughs> he had me at the cross. I saw in him a treasure that I, I simply couldn't resist, a treasure that, that blew me away in, in, into his arms. You know, we are all horrified at the ordeal of those three girls in Cleveland that had been kidnapped and abused for those years and equally amazed and grateful for their rescue, right? You realize that we, the Bible pictures us as we were kidnapped and abused by sin. Paul says that we were held captive by the evil one. He says that we were slaves of sin, as Jesus himself said. But that now we've been set free from sin. No longer to live for ourselves, which was our slavery, right? But now to live for him, Paul says, who for our sake died and was raised. I love the way Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Not a wonderful way to... I live entrusting my life to one who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's my life. That's the heart of worship. That's where worship begins, in the person of Christ, the rescue of God. And so, at, at the heart of worship, we're always celebrating our rescue It is rescue happiness, you might say, that we, uh, that, that fuels our worship. As even in Revelation, we read the new song in Revelation in heaven. 
Worthy are you, as the Lamb is revealed, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That celebration never ends. That celebration never ends. That's the heart. It's a rescue celebration there's kind of an affinity to the celebration of those girls and the, and the celebration that we have, that we have been rescued. And I love how the Psalms tell us to come into His presence with praise and thanksgiving. Uh, that, that assumes, doesn't it, that we are resting and rejoicing in His redemption, we're, we're, we're thrilled in our acceptance that we have with God. The fact that we have access to God, that we are coming because of His love for you. And even if you're not, as Brian talked about earlier, the call to praise is a call to re-enter into that happiness of belonging to Him. Re-enter into resting in Him and being comforted by Him. Come and enjoy Him and glorify Him. So, He's the author in His redemption of us. He's the author of that worship that now is focused upon Him as the one who has saved us. So, point one, right? Point two, then, these contexts of worship. The church scattered and the church gathered We worship, obviously, when we're together, but we worship doesn't stop there, does it? It it just continues out. Scattered worship means that there's really no corner of your life that may be excused from worship. But I like to put it this way. There's no corner of your life that has to be excused from worship. You get to bring worship into every part of your life. The worship of Christ happily must and will overrun all the well-defended positions you've set up in your life against it. And that's what we are as human beings. We refuse to honor Him and thank Him as God, as Romans 1 says. We have refused to enter into that joy We've got carefully constructed defense lines against worship, a whole system of dikes and dams to keep out the living water of praise. And behind those dams are the dried up swamps of our idols, dedicated areas to pleasure and priorities that have nothing to do with honoring God. But thankfully, the fresh, clean water of adoration begins to overrun and burst through to wash into every part of your life. That is sweet. When your life that wasn't marked by adoration is now taking on the aroma of adoration. And here in in Colossians 3.16, one of the passages, or 3.17 that we read... He says, in whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when he, break this down a little bit, when he says, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, name means, it represents and expresses everything that Jesus is and everything that he has accomplished for us. 
So to do it in his name means to speak and live in the full realization of all that Christ is for you and all that he's done for you. What a life to live in the presence of everything Christ is for you, everything Christ has done for you. That's why, of course, he ends this challenge with giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because how could you not speak and act in light of all that Christ is and all that he's done without gratitude? You just can't. You know, It's going to burst out in thanksgiving because you're bringing everything that Christ is. And just to explore one aspect of this, it means that you get to live in his acceptance and love in the middle of the messiest parts of your life. You don't go in and out of phases of God's acceptance, not accepted, accepted, not accepted, accept, not accepted, you know. That's not the way it works. Because you're accepted, beloved in Christ Jesus. This doesn't change. To live in His name means that His death for your sin goes with you, so to speak. It shelters you, it sustains you, it comforts you. You live in the light of His name, of of who Christ is, what He has done. His work that brings you into the embrace of the Father is yours always. You are always in that embrace. That's the scandal of grace. It doesn't matter where it goes. (laughs) Crazy grace doesn't matter where it goes. Jesus would have dinner with the tax gatherers. He'd strike up a conversation with the woman who's regarded as untouchable by the religious authorities. His grace is with you in your weak and ugly struggles against sin. His grace is with you when you feel like the worst mom, the worst friend, the worst person the worst father, the worst husband. He's with you when you're full of pride and you think you're really something. He doesn't give up on you. He attends you. He brings you along. He will bring you to new levels of humility and grace. So speak and do everything in the light of who Christ is. Bring His gracious work into the worst parts of your life. Thankfully, there are no quotas to meet for the bonus of His presence. His presence is with you because you're in Christ, period. There are no points you have to earn for free access to Him. You get to be in His presence all day. You get to be His beloved all day. And nothing can turn Him away from you. That is living in the name of Christ, you see. Cosper says, Mike Cosper in his book, Rhythms of Grace, says that to get to live in union with Christ before the eyes and presence of a loving God who receives each and every act, though offered with mixed motives or frailty of heart, he receives it as a pleasant and acceptable offering. Whole of your life. And the uh, Confession of Faith talks about this, that not only are our persons accepted in Christ, but our works with all of their weakness and frailty and mixed motive, they are made acceptable in Christ Jesus. Do you live every day in a sense of being accepted by God all day? 
That's not done if you live perfect. You can't. You won't. It's not done because you're better one day than another. It's done because of what Christ has already done. And to live in the name, to speak and act in the name of Christ is to speak and act believing that Christ's death makes me acceptable before God. There's one aspect of living out, you see, this worship of God, this glory of God. So that, as one man said years ago, about 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, he takes the things in which we're most like the animals, eating and drinking. And he says, even there, you do that to the glory of God. You do that as part of your praise of God, part of your recognition of God. And so, God's glory, God's worship, infilters everything that we do by His grace. So we get to walk behind the curtain of the holy place where God is, uh, to use the Old Testament picture of the tabernacle. And and I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, stay back there. Stay back there all day. Never leave that. That's where you belong. That's where Jesus has brought you. Again, Cosper says, behold God's glory as you live out your days. That's what you get to do. Behold God's glory as you live out your days. And so I've got to be careful about throwing up roadblocks to worship, shutting the door to worship. It's, It's always, how do I bring my worship into this, into here? How do I let worship spill into and wash this? Never quit your joy in Him. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always, again I say, never quit your joy in him. Never quit it. (laughs) Never stop rejoicing in him. That means you get to admire God all the day. Let his admiration wash into every part of your life. This is what earlier in Colossians 3, where it says do everything in word or deed in his name. Earlier it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I love that phrase. I just love it. I'm sure you're impressed that I love the word of God at that point. Um, Like we don't love everything about it. But peace means that wholeness. It's, you know, bars from the Old Testament idea of shalom and wholeness. He has you in His gracious hands. He will never turn away from you. You are whole and complete in Him, forgiven and accepted, and He attends you the whole of your days. Let that peace rule you. Uh, The way I've put it before is let the happiness of all that He's done for you rule your heart. It's almost to say the same thing as do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let the happiness of what He's done for you Take over your heart. And see, your life then gives off an aroma of one who delights in God. An aroma of one who delights in God. And as weak and terrible as it may be at times, even in our homes and sometimes in the struggles in our marriages and problems of parenting and extended family difficulties and financial difficulties and all of these things, there is a resiliency of those that 
delight in God. There's a strength, a sustenance for those that continue to delight in God and recognize His goodness. It creates a friendliness in your life. It forms a welcoming heart. It enables you to bear with others because you are actually rejoicing that God bears with you. You see, it's your joy that God would bear with you that enables you to bear with others. It's your joy in being forgiven that enables you to forgive others. It's your joy in God's kindness that begins to enable you to be kind where a person simply wouldn't expect it. Adoration sustains us in pain and loss. Its joy wells up in glad servanthood for others. And so, let us nurture it. One little way to do this is to have little constant shout-outs to God. This is something I try to practice, you know, like drinking a good cup of coffee, seeing a blue sky, hearing the sound of a bird, the convenience of your computer, a warm shower, a nourishing lunch, music in the car, whatever it is. How many times do you say in a day, Incredible. Oh, that was cool. That was magnificent, God. Oh, can't believe you could do that. You know, thank you for this. Just if you get busy at it, you're going to do this hundreds of times in a day. And and this, you can even do this as you're working. Of course, you're concentrating, but you know you're suddenly uh, looking out the window for a second, and or or you're in the midst of your work. You're just aware, Lord. I'm. I'm even able to do this. My mind is able to engage because of your goodness. Thank you. Thank you for that I have this job. Thank you that I have this work. Thank you for the energy you've given me for it. So it's good for us saturating our days with tiny remembrances, tiny pleasures of praise, tiny recognitions of his majesty. I just urge you, refresh yourself in his beauty and his wisdom and his power. And... This is scattered worship, but then gathered worship. Since we worship God all through the week, do we even have to gather for worship? And, of course, some would say no. Some would say, and in a way, you kind of understand that. I worship God so much better in the silence of walking in the forest rather than being around all those weird people, you know. You're like, amen, brother. <laughs> I get it. I understand it. Crying babies and every kind of different person. And we're to live together. We're to serve each other. We're to spend ourselves for each other. And all the mess of our lives, get involved in it. And the closer you get to each other, the more difficult it will be. The very sign of, of uh, closeness of relationship is that there will be increasing conflict. And we must work through those things. But I want to talk about worship gathered and also kind of borrow from the, the next point about audiences to bring in that second audience of us. Okay, So we're gathered and we become an audience. You see this in this passage in Ephesians 5. Almost shocking language. We says, be filled with the Spirit, which means to be governed by the Spirit, to be renewed and, and empowered by the Spirit, and transformed by the Spirit. Let the Spirit have His way in your life. And this means as a body. 
It's not like you individually, but for the body to say, let us be filled by the Spirit. And then we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. But as we do that to the Lord, at the same time, we are commanded to address one another. So you are an audience. One another is an audience. We are to be encouraging one another. Now, the version in Colossians uh, chapter 3 of this same thing is uh, perhaps even more interesting because instead of saying being filled with the Spirit, there Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he talks about hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see the, the comparison. In the one place, let the Spirit govern you. In the other place, let the Word of Christ rule you. So it's understood, of course, that the Spirit will bring about this in your life as a body through the Word. As the Spirit enables you, the, the Spirit will bring to bear the Word in your life. The, the Spirit will apply the Word in your life. But notice how it reads. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, brothers and sisters, the word dwells in us richly in this passage by the way we admonish and teach one another as we sing. And we could apply it to every part of worship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in the call to worship, in the dismissal and benediction, in your confession of faith, in your confessions of sin and assurance of pardon, in all your prayers and praises. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But it's all viewed as happening in a corporate context. Come together. Let the Word have its way in you as a body. And you can't do that apart from being there as a body. Singing and encouraging. As we sing these words, we're hearing other people sing these words. And we, we hear their conviction. We hear their hearty voices. We hear the whole sound. And it's not just me. It's we. And that's glorious. That's encouraging. We hear all the words that are spoken and we're built up by it. So corporately, we want the word to pervade us and to enrich us, to engulf us and shape us and renew us. And earlier in Ephesians uh, 4, he has a phrase there, speaking the truth in love. And many times we take this as to mean This is when you get off with somebody alone and you speak a hard thing to them, but you do it in love, right? You speak the truth in love. And so this kind of dealt with is is the hard times where you have to say something to somebody and it hurts, but you're going to say it in love and do it. But that phrase is, is found in a context of corporate growth and corporate ministry of the church. Uh, he even contrasts and says, May we no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So 
May we be guarded against everything that may turn us away. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we together are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So speaking the truth in love is the truth that's being spoken and sung within the body. We come together and we speak the truth in love to one another. We build one another up in this precious word. Until, as Paul says in that context, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature person. (laughs) We're regarded as one person maturing together as we're speaking the truth in love to one another. So see, take all that together, um, that we, the Spirit empowers and motivates us and we let the Word dwell in our midst. We speak the truth, we address each other and, and admonish and teach each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and everything else we do in worship. This is, this is the church gathered And you couple that with what Hebrews then says, as we center around the Word, as we're teaching and proclaiming that Word to each other, Hebrews says, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect it. And what does he say in that context in Hebrews chapter 10? Consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That stir up is a strong word. It It usually has a negative sound, like provoking someone to anger, okay? Like we say in Alabama, getting riled up, okay? But in this positive sense, you might say getting fired up, okay? So we're getting each other riled up or fired up to spend ourselves in love. We're putting a stick of dynamite under each other. We're setting forth the love and grace of the gospel so that our hearts are caught up in this gospel. We're swept along by it into a life of gladly giving ourselves away to others. And he goes on to say, keep encouraging each other all the more as the day is approaching, drawing near. The day of His coming when the whole creation will be renewed. The day of His coming when our warfare will be over, when we will be made perfect and our bodies will be like His glorious body. Keep encouraging one another with that hope so that we can have this glad energy to spend ourselves for others. That's why we have to gather. That's why we worship Him as we're scattered and we worship Him as we're gathered Encountering God in all of life, but here we encounter God in a more dramatic way because we're encountering His people. (laughs) That's wonderful. You get to encounter the people of God. And Scripture is not ashamed to say it. That's why again and again in the Psalms it talks about being in the congregation Being in the great congregation, I can't wait to get in the great congregation and praise His name. Longing to be with the people of God, to be built up. That word, ecclesia, church, was used to describe a gathering, a public gathering, to conduct civic business. And so, we come together to do our work. (laughs) To do our work for each other to encourage each other, to spur one another on to mission, to teach and admonish, 
We have this work together to hold on to our confession together. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake that assembly where you're reinvigorated together, refurbished together, recalibrated as you gather around to celebrate together the goodness and greatness of God. Mike Cosper again says, we continue our week-long worship and unite that worship with our brothers and sisters. Now we worship in the company of the family of God. See, we've been worshiping all week. Now we worship with our brothers and sisters. Now we worship shoulder to shoulder together. And so each feeds the other, right? We see how the church gathered spurs us on to live as the church scattered and to continue worship. But you see, we bring together our struggles and our wounds and our failures and our heartache and our longing and our conflicts and our broken relationships. And we bring in our zeal. We bring in sometimes fresh off the fields of glad sacrifice. You know, we, we come together having sincerely loved but feebly loved. We, we come in mixed motives and weakness. We come in suffering and pain. But that's what enriches us. What a novel this is. What a story this is that God is weaving right here. In our midst, with all the variety of struggle, how glorious that is. What a cast of characters you are that God is bringing about here in His glorious work. And the world, of course, is our final audience. And that's why Cosper says this, and I I close with this statement. I'll say a few words about the statement, okay. (laughs) He said he was closing with the statement. He says, The church gathered is an outpost of hope in a dying world, a fellowship of resurrected sinners whose presence in the world is a foretaste of a greater transformation to come. An outpost of hope in a dying world. You are that outpost of hope because not only because you're proclaiming the gospel, but you're living out the gospel in your life. You're like the front porch that God's put out there and says, here's where you enter in, begin to see what it's like for people to take me as their refuge, what it's like to be sheltered by me, what it's like to be loved by me and redeemed by me. I'm putting them out there. You think he wouldn't do it, but that's what he does. And when we're gathered and people are in our midst, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, they hear us and they catch the flavor of our zeal and our love and they hear what we say about God. And in your personal life as well, because as Paul says, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the truth is the gospel. We're the pillar of that gospel. We're the buttress. We we hold that gospel, that confession. We proclaim that gospel. And we live it out. And so, the transformation that is happening right here among us, how glorious is it to think this is a foretaste 
of the final transformation of the kingdom of God. Is that a glorious calling? To show people a foretaste of the final transformation of all creation when they see the growing transformation of relationship, growing transformation of love, and the fixing of our purposes upon this glorious God. Indeed, you are the light of the world. Let us pray. O Lord, draw us to yourself. Draw us to yourself, O Lord. Fix our hearts upon your beauty. Slay us, overwhelm us, enrich us. O Lord, thank you that you want to reveal your glory to your people so we can be sustained by that glory so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we may live for your glory. Amen.